As the Advent season continues and we come nearer to the time of his birth, we continue our preparation of our hearts to welcome the Christ who comes as the Savior of the world. We remind ourselves again of the people of faith who welcomed him as the fulfillment of God's promise. Our first reading comes from the book of Hebrews, beginning in chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. The word of the Lord. Our second reading comes from the book of Luke, beginning chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give, him, give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his, of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child will be born and called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. The Gospel of Christ. And so, so today we light the candle of peace to express our peace and anticipation of Jesus Christ the Messiah, God's Son, our Savior. As we do so, we prepare to welcome him as the Savior and Lord. Let us fix our eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Let us pray. Dear Father, Help us to follow the examples of Abraham and Mary by trusting in you. Use us to accomplish your purposes, even when it seems impossible to us. As we have lit the candle of peace, 
grant us peace on earth. And let that peace begin right here in our hearts. Amen. Would you please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1. And at this time, we're going to dismiss our children to Children's Church. So if you have little ones who are in Children's Church, you can make your way to the back with Miss Leanne and the Children's Church volunteers. This morning, we're going to focus our attention on verses 14 through 18 of John chapter 1. But in order to give you the context, and because it's such a beautiful scripture, I'm going to begin reading in verse 1, and we'll read all the way through verse 18. This is God's word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everything, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of, the, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. This is God's word. Let's go to him now in prayer. O oh Lord our God, we are simply overwhelmed at your goodness and grace. We thank you for the truth that we have encountered through Jesus Christ, through whom we know you, Heavenly Father through whom we experience the joy of our salvation in your spirit. We pray, Lord, as we prepare our hearts for the welcoming of your Son on Christmas Day, next Sunday, that you would show us and teach us the wonder of who you are. May we see your glory, Lord God. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I read a lot of books. I have read 63 books so far this year, 
and I am exactly 18.4% finished through book number 64. I know this because I have a spreadsheet. My goal is to finish book 65 by the end of the year, and I'm cutting it a little bit close, so the last one may have some pictures in it. Uh, It may or may not feature talking animals, but that's okay because in my mind, a book is a book, no matter how great or how small. The first book I read this year was an oral history of the movie The Princess Bride. It was great, fantastic movie, and I love the book. The second book was a biography of Charles Hodge. Princeton's Guardian of American Orthodoxy. Also a great book. I loved it. I read five Jack Reacher novels. I'm currently reading number six. Four books by a Christian writer named Paul Miller. He's only written four books. I read them all. They were all fantastic. And I read one book, a book about forgiveness by one of my favorite writers, Pastor Tim Keller. I read two books about psychology, two books about Scientology, and one book, an autobiography about the life of Johnny Cash. I read a great book about a man and his dog, Speckled Beauty by Rick Bragg, and an even better book about a mighty man of faith, A Distant Grief by Pastor Kefa Simpanji who pastored one of the churches that we visited when we went to Uganda this summer. Incredible book. But by far, not even close, the best book that I read this year was the Bible. I began in January in the book of Genesis. Right now, I'm in the book of Hebrews, and I will finish the last chapter of the last book, the book of Revelation, on the last day of the year. And I'm really looking forward to it because I already know how it ends. (laughs) Jesus wins. And that's good news, especially at the end of a year filled with all sorts of craziness and busyness. Jesus wins. So we can breathe and trust him and just live in the joy of all that he is and all that he's done. What I've discovered as I've read the book, the Bible, is that every story whispers the name of Jesus. From Genesis to Revelation, the Bible is all about him. Though technically the book of the Bible is actually 66 individual books, every book in every genre in every era of history tells the story of a God who loved us so much that he became one of us in order to rescue us. Even though we often did not want to be rescued. (laughs) Even though we were his enemies. Even though we rebelled against him. The Old Testament is filled with stories about idolatry and adultery and lying and cheating and stealing and killing. There's a lot of killing. And those are the good guys Those are the people that Jesus came to save. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. The wonder of Christmas 
is the wonder of the incarnation. The wonder of Christmas is that God became one of us in order to rescue us. Not to judge us, for God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And, verse 16, from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Gregory the Great, writing in the 6th century, once described the Bible as broad and deep. Shallow enough here for a lamb to go waiting, but deep enough there for an elephant to swim. This is one of those passages. Shallow enough to enchant the youngest member of our congregation, and deep enough to perplex even the octogenarians among us. Those who have read and reread this story time after time, year after year. It's a familiar passage talking about a familiar doctrine, the doctrine of the incarnation, the true meaning of Christmas. But it's also a passage that will change your life if you believe. This morning, we return to the opening verses of the Gospel according to John. In these verses, the Apostle John, who was one of Jesus' best friend, arguably Jesus' absolute best friend, the disciple who Jesus loved, and he's going to show us two amazing things about Christmas, two amazing things about grace, two amazing things that turned the world upside down and have continued to turn the world upside down in the 2,000 years that have passed since the very first Christmas, the day that Jesus was born. The first thing is simple, beautiful, amazing, God became a man. And the second is that he became a man so that we might see the glory of God. So how exactly did God become a human being? How is that even possible? And what kind of human being did he become? Did he become a philosopher? Did he become a king, a rich man, a poor man? What, what kind of man? And what does that teach us about what kind of good news he came to bring? And what does it mean to see God's glory? How do we see the glory of God? Why is that such an important thing for John? In a world that says it's all about you, you do you, believe in yourself, be true to yourself, could it really be good news that Christmas is all about him? Let's take a closer look. Our first big idea is this. Christmas means that God became a human being. Now, before we move on, just let that sink in. God became one of us. He, became, he had eyes and ears. He had hands and feet. The invisible God became visible. 
the light of the world stepped down into the darkness. The creator became one of his creatures. Verse 14, and the word Jesus became flesh. When we were conceived, we went from a state of non-existence into a state of existence. Before the glorious day when I was born, on October 27th, 1976, I did not exist. I did not travel here the day that I was born from another world. I traveled from nowhere to somewhere. Aurora, Nebraska. It wasn't that different from nowhere, so it wasn't a big adjustment for me. <laughs> Just kidding, Aurora, Nebraskans. It was a great town. But when Jesus was conceived, the eternal Son of God, the Word, the Logos, who always existed, traveled to this world, the world that he created, by taking on a human nature, a nature that he did not have before he was conceived. The Westminster Catechism describes it like this. Christ, the Son of God, became a man by taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul, being conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary and born of her yet without sin. One of the ancient church fathers describes it like this, remaining what he was, he became what he was not. In other words, Jesus is not God minus some aspects of his divinity, nor is he a mere mortal man plus some aspects of God's divinity. Jesus isn't 50% human and 50% divine. He is 100% human and 100% divine. J.I. Packer, in his classic work, Knowing God, describes the wonder of Christmas, the wonder of the Incarnation, like this. The more you think of it, the more staggering this becomes. God became a man. The Divine Son became a Jew. The Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than lie and stare and wriggle and make noises, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. And there was no illusion or deception in this. The babyhood of the Son of God was a reality. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as the truth of the Incarnation. Many secular people have absolutely no trouble believing in a fully human Jesus. Many religious people have no problem in believing in a fully divine Jesus. But the central shocking claim of Christianity is that this little baby lying in a manger, Jesus of Nazareth, was both God and man. What kind of God would do this? 
what kind of God would love us like this? What kind of creator would step down into his creation? What kind of king would become one of his subjects? What kind of hero would lay down his life to save the villains? You could read a thousand books next year and you will never find a story like this. And the astounding thing is that this is history, not fantasy. This really happened. Jesus wasn't born in Narnia or Middle Earth. He was born in the little town of Bethlehem, which was a real town and is a real town. You can go there. You can see the place where Jesus walked and talked and learned and lived and grew up in every other religion god says if you want a relationship with me if you want to know me if you want to be known by me if you want to have eternal life then you need to come to me you need to climb the ladder you need to climb the mountain you need to jump through all of the hoops and then maybe just maybe you can have a saving relationship with me once you pass the test. But when we see the face of Jesus, that little baby lying in the manger, we are seeing the face of God, the God who came to us, the God who came down the ladder, the God who came down the mountain, the God who passed the test that we could never pass. God became a human being but not only that, he became a certain type of human being. The type of person who shows us why the gospel is good news. Again, verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now the word that we translate dwelt could really also be translated tabernacled. John is saying he, Jesus, the Son of God, tabernacled among us what does that mean why why would he use that very specific a little bit unusual word well if you remember the old testament specifically the book of exodus and the story of exodus you'll remember that after god brought his people out of the land of egypt after the plagues and after the passover and after the crossing of the red sea he told his people to build a tabernacle the tabernacle was essentially a tent, a very simple tent, where God would live with his people. God came down to earth to meet with his people in the tabernacle. The tabernacle was the physical, visual reminder of the presence of God. But more than that, it was a concrete reminder of the promises of God. I will never leave you or forsake you. I will be with you wherever you go. When John wrote the word, Jesus, became flesh and tabernacled among us, he was using a theologically loaded word. He was saying Jesus is the true tabernacle. As the true tabernacle, Jesus was a pilgrim. 
Just as the tabernacle was a temporary structure representing God's presence with Israel during their wilderness wanderings, so also this world was not Jesus' home. He was a pilgrim here on earth. He was a nomad. He was a, a wanderer. He came from glory and would return from to glory, but during his time on earth, Jesus said, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. When you see the baby Jesus lying in the manger, when you see the Word who tabernacled among us, remember that this world is not our home. Because we belong to Jesus, we're pilgrims here. We're wanderers. We're nomads upon this earth. There is a promised land for all who belong to Jesus, but it's not here. It wasn't Jerusalem. It wasn't Rome. And it isn't the United States of America. Our whole world is profoundly damaged by sin. And Jesus will return to right the wrongs someday. But in the meantime, until the second coming, Christmas is a vivid reminder that our ultimate citizenship is not on earth. Our citizenship is in heaven. As the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, same Greek word, skenos, tabernacle. If the tent or tabernacle which is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Jesus tabernacled on this earth and in a sense so do we this world is not our home we are citizens of heaven there's more as the true tabernacle jesus was humble in his appearance if you lived in the ancient world and saw the tabernacle you would probably be underwhelmed it, it was it was a tent it was made of canvas. It was supported by simple wooden poles, wooden beams. The Egyptians had the pyramids, the great wonders of the ancient world. The other nations had ziggurats and temples. When I was a kid growing up in Southern California, we had the Crystal Cathedral. The tabernacle was nothing like that. It was simple, it was humble, it was plain. What made it glorious was the fact that God was there. Other than that, it was just an ordinary tent. Jesus, who tabernacled among us, was simple and humble and plain. With apologies to Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice, there was nothing about Jesus that would make you think that he was a superstar of any kind. He wasn't born in a castle. He was born in a barn. The son of the, of the king became the son of a carpenter. In Isaiah 53, we read, He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. 
He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. When you see the baby Jesus lying in the manger, remember that God uses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Remember that he uses humble and simple people to change the world. This week, a news story popped up in my news feed, as happens, and it was a story about a Christmas extravaganza in Texas. And in this Christmas extravaganza, they had drummers, I think three drummers and three drum kits, that were suspended by wires above the congregation as part of their Christmas extravaganza. Jordan, how would you like to be suspended uh, above Miss Sarah Oaks in the second row? Miss Sarah, how would you like it if Jordan was above you with a drum kit? Uh, I don't think that that would be safe. Uh, We might be reported to OSHA for some sort of violation if we ever were to do that. Now, I'm not saying it's bad. I'm not saying that we should not do cool things for Christmas. We're going to have a Christmas concert here tomorrow night. I hope you come. It's going to be awesome. We had a Christmas party. That was a lot of fun. Again, it's good to celebrate Christmas. My point is only that when it comes to Jesus and the church, so much of what we think is necessary with the lights and the colors and the smells and the pageantry, is really not necessary. Now, can God show up at the Christmas extravaganza? Yeah, of course he can, and I hope he does. I hope hundreds, maybe thousands of people come to faith in Jesus Christ through what, the, what that church is doing in Texas. Great, I would love that. But God does not need things like that in order to change the world. Jesus changed the world with 12 guys, 12 apostles. That's smaller than most of our life groups. Imagine if one of our life groups literally changed the world. That's all Jesus needs. He changed the world with men who used to be tax collectors and fishermen and at least one woman who used to be a prostitute. Jesus made his first appearance in a barn. He can and does change the world through tiny little churches in places like rural Uganda where everyone is sitting on the same blue and white plastic chairs where there are no doors and the windows are all open and the sound system is less than reliable because he changed the world through the preaching of the gospel. He changes the world through acts of love and mercy and service. So what does God use? Well, in John 17, Jesus prayed to his heavenly Father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. We glorify God when we accomplish the work that God has given us to do. We talk about Jesus who died on the cross for our sins. We help people who need help in the name of Jesus, who healed the sick, who fed the 5,000, who calmed the storm. 
we celebrate the true meaning of Christmas when we love each other deeply, when we give generously, when we sing joyfully. And on Christmas Sunday, we will celebrate the beautiful simplicity of Christmas, reading God's word and singing songs to his glory and baptizing a baby and eating the Lord's Supper together. And then we'll make sure that all the little kids have gifts and candy and little bookmarks with Bible verses on them because Jesus was once a kid and Jesus loved kids and so do we. There is beauty in simplicity. Jesus is the true tabernacle. Jesus is our humble king. As the true tabernacle, Jesus is the center of everything. In the book of Numbers, we're told that whenever the Israelites would set out on their journey, they would take the tabernacle along, and whenever they camped, they would put the tabernacle literally in the center of the camp. All the tribes of Israel were arranged around the tabernacle. It was literally at the center of God's people. When you see Jesus lying in the manger, remember that Jesus must be the center of everything. In Mark 10, a, a rich young man ran up to Jesus and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's always what we ask, is it not? God, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus told him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Now, as much as I would like to twist that passage into a sermon on end of the year giving, <laughs> the real point is is that something else other than God was at the center of this young man's life. His money, his possessions, his reputation, his status, his power, that was the center, not Jesus. Jesus is saying, I am the true tabernacle. You need to arrange your life around me. If I am not at the center, you cannot be my disciple because that's what a disciple is. Is Jesus the center of your life? As you think about your goals and your plans and your dreams for the upcoming year, is Jesus at the center of those hopes and dreams? Is Jesus at the center of your marriage? Is Jesus at the center of your family? Are you living your life to glorify him? Jesus became a certain type of, a man, the true tabernacle, so that we might become a certain type of men and women. The Christmas story changes everything. Second big idea, last one. God became a human being so that we might see his life-changing glory. Verse 14, and we have seen his glory 
glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 18, no one who has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Now, it's hard for many of us to feel the impact of those words. I think oftentimes we have sort of a sentimentalized idea of the glory of God. You know, we think about the glory of God. We think about the lights and the sounds and the wonder. We think about the grand finale of the the Texas Christmas extravaganza with the drummers in the air. Okay, that's part of what it is. But the Jews who read this had a very different vision of the glory of God. For them, the glory of God was something to be feared. When they thought about the glory of God, they thought about Mount Sinai. John even references that in verse 17, so that's clearly on his mind. And so, when the Jewish readers read these verses, they would conjure up images of a consuming fire and thunder and lightning and dread and fear and danger. They would have thought about the word kavod. And they would have thought about the weight, the heaviness of the glory of God. They would have heard Yahweh, the God of Israel, saying, Moses, you cannot see my face and live. The question is, is that still true? Well, according to John, it isn't. According to John, we can see God's face and live. According to John, we can see and experience the glory of God without fear. According to John, there is no fear in love, for perfect love casts out fear. So how does Jesus show us the glory of God? Two ways, in his person and in his provision. As a person, Jesus is superior to all other human prophets, all other human priests, all other human kings. He is superior to Abraham and Moses and King David and even the angels. Verse 15, John the Baptist bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. In other words, John the Baptist, who was in many ways the last Old Testament prophet, is saying, I know I'm older than Jesus, but really he's older than me. I know because I came first, many people would say that I am greater than Jesus. I am not greater than Jesus. Jesus is greater than me. I am the messenger. He is the message. All of my life and all of my ministry is focused on the glory of who Jesus is. All human leaders falter spiritually. John the Baptist faltered spiritually when john the baptist was put in prison and he was facing the death penalty he sent his disciples to jesus and said jesus are you really the messiah or should we expect another all human leaders falter physically john the baptist died he was executed and unlike jesus who was also executed john the baptist did not rise from the dead and will not rise from the dead until the second coming of christ when all of god's people rise from the dead jesus is different jesus never falters jesus never fails and jesus will never die Jesus prays for you every single day. 
How many of you falter in your pray, prayers for other people? You say, oh yeah, I'll pray on that. I'll pray about that. I'll pray for you. You forget. Jesus never forgets. He's always there. He's with you in hurricanes. He's with you in hospital rooms. You name it, Jesus is there. He's a glorious person, but he's also glorious in his provision. Verse 16, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Jesus gives us grace that is greater than our sins. In the book of Ephesians, we are told that we are dead in our trespasses and sins until we have been made alive together with Christ by grace. Grace upon grace, we have been saved. The grace of Jesus turns orphans into children and enemies into friends. The very name Jesus means Savior. You shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. But he also gives us sustaining grace, grace for living. William Barclay, writing on verse 16, said this, We need one grace in times of prosperity and another in times of adversity. We need one grace in the sunlit days of youth and another when the shadows of age begin to lengthen. The church needs one grace in the days of persecution and another when the days of acceptance have come. We need one grace when we feel that we are on top of things and another when we are depressed and discouraged and near to despair. Whether you're here this morning searching for the grace of salvation or whether you've come this morning discouraged and beaten down and a little bit overwhelmed by the whole Christmas season, there is grace for you, grace upon grace in the person of Jesus, the word of God. For through Jesus, we see and experience the glory, the life-changing glory of God. Well, we're in the home stretch. Christmas is next Sunday, and all the busyness and all the stress and the wrapping the presents and last-minute Amazon deliveries. Don't forget the most important thing from the most important book ever written. The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we have seen His glory the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And from His fullness, we've all received grace upon grace. Let's go to Him in prayer. O Lord our God, we thank You for the grace that You've given us in Christ. How often we trample that grace underfoot through our negligence, through our active disobedience through our failure to love one another as much as you have loved us. Oh Lord, we ask for grace that is greater than our sins. We ask for grace that is greater than the busyness and greater than the worry and greater than the fear. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would show us the beauty and simplicity of the gospel during this final week before Christmas Day that on the day of your birth, 
there might be a crescendo of praise and glory and honor for your name. Hear our prayer, for we pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior and our King. Amen.